Praise the Lord, everybody. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We apologize for the delay this morning. Um, Internet's acting a little wonky today, but we thank the Lord anyway. If I can get some of the studio audience to just verify that we are going out um, on Facebook, I'd greatly appreciate it. Truly, it's an honor to be here uh, today on this, as they have deemed it, Pentecost Sunday, the day where some say the church was birthed. Or at the very least, the power of the Holy Spirit was released into the lives of all believers. Hallelujah. So we thank the Lord again for each and every one of you. If you're celebrating Pentecost, hallelujah, praise the Lord for the indwelling power and presence of God in our life. Amen. We are nothing without God. Amen. So I thank you and I celebrate with you this Pentecost. I wanted to take, take some time this morning. Uh, I, I know I always say I'm not going to be before you long, which means about an hour. Um, we'll see what the Lord has to say about it. But I wanted to continue in the vein of uh, talking about the Word of God. You know, I've, I have found that we are always looking for ways to validate things written or things that are said so that we can ensure whatever it is said or written is accurate. That the very thing that we're looking at, thinking about, pondering upon is dependable. And at the very core of it all is what I'm seeing, hearing, experiencing true. And when I think about God's word as written in scripture, I know in my heart it is true. And so I believe it at face value without hesitation. But too many do not view the Bible the same way I do. While those that are here in the studio audience and many of you watching on this broadcast today may feel as I do, there are still many others who do not uh, believe like we do, which leads me to talk more about God's amazing word. Amen. And I want to point out something that's really important to all of us. The Bible was not just haphazardly thrown together. And knowing this, it leads me to explain in further detail why we have what we have in God's word, why we can depend upon it, why we can believe that it's true, why we can accept it at face value. There's a fancy term called canon or canonicity. And the canonicity of scripture is a very important part of the bibliography uh, or, or the bibliography of the, or the doctrine of the study of the Bible. You see, the word canon means a rule or a standard, and it refers to a reed which is used for measuring things, which like a ruler we used when we were in school, at least when I was. Now, I'm sure that there's some newfangled electronic device out there that the kids are using today to uh, do normal measurement, but you get the point. The classic definition of canon in church is really a rule of faith. And over the centuries of the church history, many denominations and church bodies have drawn up canons that help determine what their belief is and what their practice will be based upon what they believe. The Roman Catholic Church has their own canon of Scripture as well as an extensive body of canon law that has been collected and revised over many centuries. And in the process of time, the word canon has also come to mean a catalog or a listing, as in this case, the authoritative list of books that make up what we call the Bible. 
Now, the processing criteria for determining canonicity tells us how the writings of the Bible became recognized as the authoritative and inspired word of God, and as such, how they are to be collected and how they're to be preserved. Now, this thinking or this type of um, understanding is an intriguing and important part of uh, the acceptance of God's word because the process by which the books of the Bible were included is an amazing story in and of itself. But today I want to primarily focus on the collected word that we have in our hands today. The 39 Old Testament books and the 27 New Testament books that make up God's inspired, inerrant word. Now, despite the official canonicity of Scripture, there exists several different lists of books that are considered by others to be part of the Bible or their Bible. And during the process, there were many other so-called gospels and epistles and manuscripts that were written about the same time as the other books of the Bible were written that did not make it into the, into the Bible or into the Holy Scripture. But here's the bottom line. God spoke his word and inspired people to record every word exactly as he wanted then God preserved his word and he oversaw the process by which the 66 books of the Bible were assembled into the complete and authoritative collection of scripture that drives or at least should drive a body of believers today. Amen. So the first question that must be answered concerning the Bible's canonicity then is how some writings were chosen to be included in scripture while others were excluded. What the early church did was discern. They discerned under the guidance of the Holy Spirit which books already carried the stamp of the Spirit's inspiration and which books did not. And the determining authority for the canon of Scripture was not man. The determining authority for the canon of Scripture is God himself. It's not any church body. It's not any specific denomination. It's not any doctrine. It's not any individual leader. God decided the canon of Scripture. People simply recognized what God had decided. Amen. Let me give you an everyday example of what I'm talking about. Suppose uh, you're having a garage sale. It's a Saturday, and you're, you're going to throw up the garage door, and you're going to sell all the stuff that you want to get rid of in your house, and you have this uh, object out in your uh, driveway for sale and that object has a $100 price tag on it. So someone comes along and they buy that $100 uh, item and they give you $100. And you're excited because you have this $100 in your hand and on Monday your plan is you're going to go to the bank and you're going to make that deposit of that $100 in your bank account. So here comes Monday, and down to the bank you go to deposit those five crisp new $20 bills that the buyer gave you on Saturday. But to your horror, the bank teller informs you that all the bills are counterfeit. Now, after you stop doing what only you know you'd be doing in a situation like this, you can protest all you want and explain to the teller that you accepted those bills in good faith. You can say that the buyer seemed as honest as Abe Lincoln and even claimed to be a close friend of the president of the bank that you're standing in. 
You can show the teller that the fake bills have all uh, Andrew Jackson's pictures on them, just like the other $20 bills that are in the teller's till. You can even gather all the customers in the bank around and take a vote on whether these bills look and feel authentic to them. But none of it really matters because you're going to still be out of $100. You see, the fact is that the standard for the authenticity of U.S. bills has already been determined, and your bills don't meet the standard. Well. Now, transfer this scenario to the Bible. Let's consider the book of Matthew, which was written by one of Jesus' 12 apostles. Now, there was a, 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 a text floating around in the early church that claimed to be a gospel written by the apostle Thomas who was just as authentic an apostle as Matthew. Now, how did the early church know that the gospel of Matthew was part of God's authentic revelation while the gospel of Thomas was not? And how can we be sure today that we're not missing something God wants us to know that's not in the Bible? Well, the answer is that the church ran both books under the criteria of the Holy Spirit's sovereign guidance and direction, and the gospel of Thomas didn't last. It didn't stand up. It didn't meet the standard. Now, church leaders examined the books carefully for internal evidence of inspiration, and they checked the external evidence for its authenticity. They followed specific criteria, which I will clue you in on in just a second. But all of this was done to determine which book claiming to be scripture either authenticated or disqualified itself. It was not authenticated or disqualified by man. Amen. We have to understand this fundamental principle that God, the Holy Spirit, and not man determines the canon of Scripture. And if we do not believe and affirm that God, who guided human beings to write Scripture, also guided other human beings to collect it in one book, then our entire doctrine of Scripture crumbles like a house of cards. Amen. Well, you may be thinking, why is that? Well, because God is perfect, and his ways are perfect. True, the very nature of ratifying one book and rejecting another creates an element of human interaction with the text in which uh, the validation is being determined, in which the criteria of that validation had to be established and discerning judgments had to be made. However, there is a difference between discerning what is already true versus making autonomous decisions about what can be true. Well, you see, people did not have the, author, the uh, authority to decide what is Scripture. But God does allow, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, people to participate in discerning which books God had already decided and designed to authentically reveal who God is his plan of redemption, and the introduction of his son. You see, the church only recognized the canon that God established. And that's a very important distinction because if man determines what is scripture, then man can add to it and man can take away from it. Now, canonicity is not just a musty issue from ancient history. American founding father Thomas Jefferson, who was a deist, took a pair of scissors to the Gospels and cut out the parts he didn't accept. 
As a matter of fact, the Da Vinci Code, which is the popular novel, I'm sure that you've heard of this, it later becomes a film. It was written by a man by the name of Dan Brown in 2003, and it highlighted a lot of uh, pseudographical works, which are texts which claimed authors who were not true authors or books whose real authors attributed the work to a figure that's in the past. And it brought them to the attention of the general public. Now, through this book that Brown wrote or this novel, some of his fictional assertions became mainstream. You see, Brown suggested that Leonardo da Vinci's famous The Last Supper uh, picture or painting was actually coded by the artist to point to Jesus having been married to Mary Magdalene. Now, he brought to his audience's minds the, the supposed gospel of Philip and the gospel of Mary. And these alluded to this relationship. Now, Brown suggested that these gospels, among others, were hidden, and then they were unearthed among the Dead Sea Scrolls. However, the Dead Sea Scrolls found at Qumran did not contain any New Testament document. In fact, the scribes at Qumran were uh, a part of a Jewish sect that copied and preserved scripture long before the birth of Jesus. And because most people are unaware of this and the process of determining what is canon, those books gain worldwide attention following Brown's assertion, or maybe better yet, the movie. Now, the result was many people began to read these pseudo-pographical uh, works as scripture, causing some to question the legitimacy of the biblical canon. And this is just crazy. Amen. Yet there are reasons why these books were not recorded as scripture. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why? And I'm glad that you're a curious bunch. <laughs> so let me just tell you, there are some admission standards. Every university, thinking about it, has certain standards that applicants must meet before being admitted into that university. These standards may include a high school or the requirement to have a high school diploma, a certain minimum score on some standardized achievement or admission test, some evidence of financial ability to pay for the school. Some even de determine that you have to have a medical exam so that they'll know that your health is able to stand going to school. And then even others look for personal references and recommendations from other recognized authorities. Likewise, there was also an admission standard for a piece of writing to be recognized as spirit-inspired and admitted to the New Testament canon. I'm going to give you a, a few of the points that they looked at. The first was apostleship. You see, the book, to be canonized, it had to have been written by a true prophet or an apostle or by someone in direct contact with a prophet or an apostle. So the legitimacy and the authenticity of this message was confirmed by accompanying supernatural acts of God. You can read about this in Acts, the second chapter, the 22nd verse, 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter and the 12th verse, Hebrews, the second chapter and the fourth verse, if you want to validate what I'm telling you. Now, Matthew's, John's, and Peter's writings met this standard. Books like Mark, Luke, Acts, 
Acts, James, and Jude qualified because they were written by firsthand associates of these apostles, men who carried the apostles' stamp of approval. Paul's epistles bore the stamp of the apostolic authorship because God called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Praise God. Now, we know that the books of Hebrews and 1st, 2nd, and, uh, or 3rd uh, John, they don't really name the author, but they have apostolic authority because of the writing style and that they state in them that they were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Now, just as a contender for the New Testament had to meet the standard of uh, apostolic authority, the standards were extremely high for inclusion in the Old Testament canon as well. You see, the writer of Hebrews affirmed that God spoke a long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Now, we get a glimpse of this uh, in Exodus, the 24th chapter, the third through the fourth verse which tells us a story of Moses, the first prophet through which God spoke. And the word declares that Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. God spoke his revelation, and Moses wrote it down by inspiration. And the reason we know God created the heavens and the earth is that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired Moses to record these events. And even though no human being was present at creation, no matter how old you think you might be, Moses did not just sit down, look up, uh, up at the stars one morning and begin weaving a story about God and creation. In fact, God established strict guidelines for his prophets that help us draw the line between true and false prophets. Even today, God says to Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Well, if you don't believe me, everyone wants to run, about, run around and be a prophet. They want to prophesy you houses and cars and clothes and women and men and all these different things. They better read Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, the 18th through the 20th verse, because if God did not declare it, they put their life in jeopardy. And you can see why in the Old Testament days, there wasn't a long line of people like today volunteering to be prophets. You see, if you tried to claim a true prophet's authority falsely, it would cost you your life. And a prophet had a weighty responsibility because he had to speak the very words of God just as he received them from God. And those words became the standard by which God's people would be judged. For a book to be recognized as canonical, it had to tell the truth from God and had to be true about God. Amen. You can check that in the 13th chapter of Deuteronomy, the first through the third verse. 
Now, by the time Moses is dead and Joshua has succeeded him as God's leader for Israel, Joshua had the writings of Moses to read and to obey. And that's why God commanded Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Now, let me just pause there for a second because because if you think about it, this is a very strong command connected to your own prosperity. If you do what God has commanded Joshua to do, uh, the promise of God is for you just like it was for Joshua. Amen. So if you're not living the prosperous life that you think you should be living, you may want to check whether or not you are doing what God commanded to be done to connect you to prosperity. Now, think about this. Joshua wrote the book that bears his name, and it added to the writings of Scripture. Joshua passed the test of being associated with a prophet. He was Moses' right-hand man. And in the last chapter of Joshua, we are told, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it upon there under the oak that, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua 24 and 26. So Joshua had the writings of Moses, but he also wrote under the Spirit's inspiration. The Bible accumulated over time as there developed a recognized chain of prophetic leaders whose writings were accepted as Scripture. Now these men knew they were hearing from God. You can validate that in Ezekiel, the third chapter in the first verse, or Jeremiah, the first chapter in the second verse. And when it comes to the Old Testament canon, we have a witness to the authenticity of the books that goes back beyond uh, the beginning of the church itself. You see, the Jews had recognized and brought together the books of the Hebrew canon many years before the days of Jesus and the apostles. In other words, God led the Jews to assemble their inspired canon and the fact that God's people rejected a batch of other Jewish books called the Apocrypha, Apocrypha, it's critically important to us. You see, each of the New Testament books, except Hebrews and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, carries the name either of an apostle or a personal associate of, uh, of an apostle. Even Hebrews and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, clearly demonstrate uh, apostolic authority. And the apostles, particularly Paul, were not reluctant to claim God's inspiration for their writings. Let me give you an example. Check the text. Paul wrote this himself. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me <laughs> is not according to man. And yes, he threw in the <laughs> For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Check the text, Galatians 1 and 11 through 12. And again, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you are receive that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is the word of God which also performs its work in you who believes first Thessalonians the second chapter in the 13th verse so the apostles knew that their writings were authoritative and they said so but even Luke 
who was not an apostle, was bold enough to say that he received the material for both volumes of his writings from the apostles. Look at Luke 1, 1 through 4, and Acts 1 and 2. And in a very important passage, Paul's writings received the apostolic seal of approval from Peter, who called Paul's letters the scriptures. If you don't believe me, go to 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. And besides uh, apostleship, there's also doctrinal consistency. You see, the second test of canonicity included whether the people of God recognized it as authoritative and accepted it as the word of God. In other words, a book had to win a hearing from God's people as the Holy Spirit witnessed within those people that the book's message was from God. Look at Nehemiah 8 and 9, 14 uh, through 18, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13. They also had to determine whether it stayed within the rules of faith, which had been established already. And if you recall, the term canon refers to a rule or an authority. So similar to a, a measurement standard, Irenaeus, a prominent early church leader back around 130-200 AD, wrote about the church's discussion concerning uh, maintaining the rule of faith. And you can read about this if you're really interested uh, in the book uh, Against Heresies, uh, the, the 10th chapter of that book. He talks about maintaining the rule of faith. And this was used to solidify consistency in teaching. You see, this rule was a summary of what Christians had always believed, and it would later become the basis for creeds such as the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. So the rule of faith operated as a guide for teachers and preachers in the church to make sure that they stayed in line with the faith that was handed down to them through the apostles. The epistle Jude calls the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now the rule of faith summarized God's work in creation God's work through redemption, through the sending of his son Jesus, and the consummation of his work in the final judgment and the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And the same rule was used by church leaders in conjunction with other things to determine whether a written book should be considered part of the canon. Of course, this applied to the New Testament books only. But there were internal validation as well. There's just something about the word of God. Amen. The Hebrew canon was all already established by the time that Jesus comes on the scene. The physical manifestation of Jesus. Now, our Lord, Jesus himself, quoted extensively from the Old Testament during his earthly ministry. And doing this validated the writings of the patriarchs and the prophets. Look at Matthew 26 and 56 or Luke 24 and 27. The appearance of Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and 3 is a powerful testimony of their authority as representatives of these two categories of Old Testament authors and also a powerful testimony that all of the Old Testament points to who? Jesus. 
Notice how Paul testified to the authority of the Old Testament and urged the church to make use of it in learning how God wants us to live. You can listen to people today that will tell you the Old Testament is past. We're just a New Testament people. They're misguided. The Old Testament was not to be cast away. Paul himself in the New Testament writes, for whatever was written in earlier times, that's the Old Testament, was written for our what? Instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Romans 15 in the fourth chapter, or the 15th chapter in the fourth verse. You just check the text if you don't really follow what I'm saying. But that's not the only place because elsewhere Paul says that the events in the Old Testament happened to them as an example and they were written for what? Our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Now the New Testament quotes the Old Testament more than 250 times. And it alludes to things in the Old Testament another 900 times. Now this is overwhelming evidence that the apostles and even Jesus considered the Old Testament to be God's authoritative word. So you can't just get the New Testament version of the Bible. You don't want a Bible that just got the New Testament version. You want one that has the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Gospels came to the church bearing the stamp of inspiration, but they didn't come without some questions and uh, varying debates. In fact, the entire canonicity of the New Testament was not as cut and dry as the Old Testament was. Now, with the four gospel accounts, as well as a wide variety of writers from various backgrounds, it took a bit longer for the uh, ecumenical church to attain consensus on the canon of the New Testament. The synoptic gospels, which for all my Bible theologians and studiers, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were among the first books of the New Testament to be widely recognized as part of biblical canon. Now, John's gospel took a lot longer to gain full recognition because John's gospel differed in more ways than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke differed slightly from each other, but John differed greatly, and it made clearer claims about the divinity of Christ. Now, the New Testament epistles were used in, uh, and they were circulated amongst the churches, and they gained instant recognition as the word of God. The teachings of the apostles were considered authoritative for the church, 1 Corinthians 14 and 37, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 4, if you're keeping track. Now, the authors of these books often claimed inspiration for themselves. Galatians 1, 11 through 12, which I hinted to earlier. 1 Thessalonians 2 and 13 again. And the, the apostles' doctrine, uh, they were all consistent with what? One another, which is another key test of canonicity. Are they all saying the same thing? Is there a consistency of Scripture? Now, the canon of Scripture was not being fully settled until about 400 years after Jesus. And even then, some books continued to be questioned by various leaders and councils, including 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, James, Jude, Hebrews, and yes, even Revelation. 
Now, some people point to these historical facts as evidence that the process of assembling the canon was a subjective human work. Actually, they prove just the opposite if you look at it at, uh, in truth. The fact that the canon of Scripture existed by informal recognition for so long shows the staying power of the books that God inspired. For instance, the Gospel of Thomas had basically several hundred years to convince the church it was from God. Yet, the Gospel of Thomas didn't make it into the canon because it is not the inspired word of God. Amen. Now, the lateness of the final canon is testimony to the fact that what the church had recognized and accepted all along as Scripture is valid. Now, most of the doubts on uh, these latter books had to do with the uh, apostolic authorship of these books. And uh, they proved, uh, but, you know, they, they still proved in its writing their inspiration uh, from God. And many of the doubts about James really stemmed from more of a misunderstanding of what James was teaching, which confused people about the unity of Scripture because they believed at one point that the teachings of James were that you were saved by works and not by faith alone, which is still confused today. But if you take careful study and allow the Spirit of God to guide you, if you look into the exposition of James, it has shown that those who thought James's uh, teaching contradicted Paul's ringing declaration, the righteous man shall live by faith in Romans 1 and 17, are simply wrong. James compliments Paul by telling us that uh, we authenticate our faith through our works. You see, this is... Uh, what James is trying to get us to understand is that your works validate that you have faith. It's the evidence of your faith. It tells the world that you're a believer. Now, the book of Revelation was the last book of Scripture to be written, and uh, it's the end of the canon, and it was questioned in part because of his uh, uh, apocalyptic images that seem really to be too fantastic to be real. But again, that doubt is settled by careful biblical interpretation. Now, John claimed that his message came straight from heaven. Revelations 1 and 11. And he even added uh, this course uh, or this curse to anyone who tries to add to or subtract from Scripture. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. If you don't believe me, Revelation 22, 18 through 19, check the text. But there wasn't just internal validation. There was external validation as well. And the actual uh, debate uh, uh, about the date is really unclear. And it probably wasn't until the early part of the second century that the Christian church may have copied down and collected and preserved every portion of the New Testament. But formal canonical lists were not established and widely circulated until the fourth and fifth centuries. Amen. 
And by then, the argument over which books should be included had largely subsided. And then the final lists were drawn up at the Synods of Hippo in A.D. 393 and also at Carthage in A.D. 397. Essentially, the church closed the canon of Scripture around this period of time, 400 A.D. And in doing this, they rejected heretical theologies and it's important to stand on the finality of the discernment of the ecumenical church as this process was the result of surveying apostolic authorship and reception among those who live closest to the times of Jesus Christ. Now let me touch on this briefly before we finish uh, looking at the canon. Many Christians are aware that the Old Testament of the Roman Catholic Bible contains about a dozen or so extra books. Don't quote me on the number, but it's around a dozen. And the Protestant church has rejected as non-canonical those 12 books or 12-ish books. Now, these books are called the Apocrypha, which means secret thing or secret writings. And one reason these books are in the Catholic Bible is that the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants have a fundamentally different approach to the issue of canonicity. You see, the Catholic position is that the Church of Rome determines what is canon. This means that even though the Hebrew canon does not contain the Apocrypha, and even though Jesus and the apostles never referred to them, not one time quoted from them, recognized them, the Catholic Church still believes it has the authority to declare these books as Scripture. You see, the Catholic Church canonized the Apocrypha at the Council of Trent in 1546. But the books of the Apocrypha fail on each of the criteria for inclusion in the Bible. You see, the fact that the Jews never accepted these books as part of the Old Testament is hugely important and a great witness against the Apocrypha as being canonical. So is the silence then of Jesus and the fact that the early church does not recognize or formally canonize the uh, apocryphal books bring any validity to the fact that they should not be there? Well, the apocryphal books also fail the test of internal evidence as well. You see, if you read them, they never claim to be the word of God. And much of the content that, cons that consists of the kind of Jewish myth that Paul warns us, the church, the body of Christ, to stay away from in Titus 1.14. In fact, one of those books is Maccabees. And in 1 Maccabees 9 and 27, it considers its time period as being characterized by an absence of prophetic witness. They also contain serious doctrinal errors such as teaching that we need to give money to go to heaven. Now, for some of us, we'd really be in, in trouble. Now, part of the problem is that the Roman church believes in apostolic succession. 
Now, I'm going to say something here that's probably going to frustrate some folks, and it's probably going to make me some more enemies and make some people not like me. But the view that the authority of the apostles was passed directly from the 12 to the Roman church uh, is what they believe and that that, that uh, succession is still in their hands. The Catholic Church is not alone in this view, by the way. Let me just point this out to you. The Mormons also make the same claim. But we know from the Bible that the era of the apostles ended when the last apostle died. Well, how do we know this? Because an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. Take a look at Acts 1 and 22. So apostolic succession is not a biblical doctrine. I know I'm, I'm frustrating some people, especially some people with some titles, and that's not my problem. I'm only telling you what the Bible tells us. Now, for a written work to be considered and included in the official canon of Scripture, it had to pass multiple standards of authorship, uh, doctrinal consistency, internal testimony, external validation. Through this unique formalizing process, God has given us his truths in Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's just something about the Word of God. Why do I believe what it says? Why do I accept it at face value? You see, for me, I didn't need all that. Now, some, some people do. And I've presented to you the evidence of the validity of God's word as described in detail in the Bible. But when I look at it, because I'm filled with his presence, I'm, in, I'm the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. God himself resides in me. And I'm not unique or special. Every believer has the ability to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In fact, it is the gift of the Holy Ghost that allows you to be a believer. Because your flesh won't believe it. Your flesh is enmity against God. Amen. It can't stand God. It wants no part of God. Which is why some of us struggle with James. Because our works do not validate what our mouth says. But that's a topic for another day. What I want you to take away from today is that when you read the word of God, when you open up the book, you're not reading what man thought was good to write. You are reading what God determined to be right and true. And because the word is God's word, you can have every confidence that what it says is true. There's nothing missing from the Bible. I'm here to tell you, there's no book nowhere that you will find unearthed that should have been in the Bible that just hadn't been found yet and need to be added later. This is a trick of the enemy. I've often said it's okay to read other things because other books and other writings give us some context and uh, fill in uh, 
you know, historical information and help us to frame a picture, uh, to visualize what's going on in the time of the right or in the times of the writing of the Bible. Uh, but you can't stand on those things. You can't uh, say that these are the things of God. But whatever is written in God's word, I can believe it. So if God says, I'm well, I can believe it. If God says, I'm healed, I can believe it. If God says, I'm saved, I can believe it. If God says he's coming back again, I can believe it. If God says there's coming a day when the sky will crack, and the dead shall raise up from the grave and we that are alive shall meet with them in the air and forever be with the Lord. I can believe it. It's been validated. There's authenticity to it. It's been canonized so I can stand on it. It's not sand that I will sink, but it is rock that I will be surely stood on without wavering. You can believe what God's word declares. Read Genesis to Revelation. Don't read it once. Read it again. My wife and I, we laugh at my youngest son in love because there's a series on TV that he greatly enjoys, Hawaii Five-0. And no matter where, he, where he's at, what he's doing, he'll have his uh, cell phone and, uh, you know, they'll have the little video channel on there and he's watching every season of Hawaii Five-0 back to back to back. So much so that he can now pretty much quote everyone's lines from every season, from every episode. He can tell you what's happening, what's going to happen, who's going to say what, what, what explosion is going to take place, all these different things. He can do this because he watches it over and over and over and over again. He's that into that series. He really likes it. Imagine if we, the people of God, would get into the word of God with that kind of enthusiasm. Yes. There are times when my son talks to me about things, he'll ask me things that happen in the TV show, and I have to, I have to pause and reflect to make sure that he's talking about the TV show and not reality, and then remind him that it's a TV show and not reality. He'll say, but you know, this, 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 this happened. And I'll say, in, in your show? Or are you talking about like in real life? Because like in real life, they'd be going to jail. In the show, they get away with it. And he goes, oh, the show. And I say, yeah, but that, that's not reality. But I can tell you that if you look at the Bible and, and you say, well, it says this. You see, the doctor said this about me. But, but the Bible says this about me. I can say to you without any doubt what the Bible says trumps what your doctor says. There is finality in what God says. And what God says will always last. 
people of God, get into the word of God. There's something amazing and wonderful, exciting about the word of God. It explodes with life as you read it. It, it, it brings imagery and pictures. It, it, it allows you to go to a place that you've never been to before every time you read it. And even when you read it the first time and you read it the second time, it hits you different. And you read it the third time, it hits you a little different. And you read it the fourth time, it hits you a little different. You see something different in it every time you open it. Why? Because it's a living word. It's not a dead word. It's a living word. There's a reason they call it the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because they're dead works. But what's written in the Lamb's Book of Life is Live and it will minister greatly to you each and every time you read it. Because it's God's word. It is God's word. Now Jesus gave us the ability through his death, burial, and resurrection to experience what is the Passover. And he asked us that if we do anything, Remember what he has done. Amen. You see, he told his disciples that he longed to share the Passover meal with them. Amen. And he longs to share with us. Now, we as a church have gone through the uh, Jewish tradition and we've experienced the, the Passover and we've sung the songs and... Um, spoke the language and, and all these different things, but the greatest remembrance of the Passover for us isn't really that. It's communion. Amen. Now this being first Sunday, I know it's Pentecost Sunday and there are probably preachers calling fire down from heaven today. <laughs> but I think the greatest thing that we can do because if it had not been for what Jesus did, Nobody anywhere would be able to do anything. Amen. So today, even though I remember Pentecost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit upon the church, I also remember Jesus, which initiated it all. Because Jesus said, it's better for me to go away. Because while he was here, the Spirit could not stay. Amen. So he left. And he sent us the gift of the Holy Spirit. So today we remember Pentecost, but we also remember Jesus Amen. and his work. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. I'm going to ask uh, if you would give me the um, sacraments of our faith. The word of God tells us in the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. When they had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. As often as ye drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. We who eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we do show the Lord's mercy. We receive his grace. We celebrate his victory. 
So I give you the opportunity to have communion with us. I wish that I could reach through the television studio's airwaves and serve you with this myself. But as best I can do is give you a visual representation and encourage you that if you have not, you should take part in communion if you're a believer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask thy blessings upon these sacraments, this wafer that represents thy body and this juice that represents thy blood. Bless it now as we stand here in remembrance of the shedding of your blood, the brutalization that you endured for us in your body, that the judgment of God will be fulfilled, that we will be translated from death into life. Father, now by thy grace, you gave us your son. You received him back up to you. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And we that are in Christ are seated with him in heavenly places. We thank you now and take part in remembering your death, your burial, and your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we're going to serve this here in the studio, but we want to say God bless you, heaven smile upon you, and grant to you great peace. May the Lord keep you in all you do, prosper the work of your hands, and bring liberty to your heart, mind, body, soul, and spirit, that Jesus may be glorified in your life. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday.